This episode of Guitar Radio Show is brought to you in part by Geppetto Pickups, GeppettoGuitars.com. Guitar players are always searching for the tone that will define their playing identity. Geppetto Pickups' wide spectrum of tones and sonic colors inspire and instill a newfound confidence in the player that comes from having amazing tone. Go to GeppettoGuitars.com. We'll give your guitar's voice, but But you'll you'll make make it sing. sing. Welcome to Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to the guitar player, guitar maker, gear builder, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. Here's your host, Mark Davin. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Guitar Radio Show. We are starting a series of uh, interviews with uh, my favorite guests, and there was no way I could start this off without having one of my all-time favorite guests, one of my all-time favorite people, all-time favorite guitar players, someone who has taught me so much over the years. We're going to be doing top 10 albums and why, their top 10 favorite albums and why. And I couldn't do this without Mr. Andy Elidort. Uh, folks, um, in 2022, he released a record called Light of Love that you should own. Uh, if you're a guitar player, if you're a lover of music, you should own this record. Don't just stream the goddamn thing. Buy it. Uh, it is a uh, tour de force of, of learning, understanding, and being dazzled by amazing guitar music. Um, so please welcome back to the show one of my favorite people, Mr. Andy Elidord. How are you? I'm very good, and Mark, uh, what can I say? I'm unworthy. Not worthy of your of your, uh, your kindness and generosity, and um, thanks for the really kind words on Light of Love. Um, it's a double album, eighteen songs, long time in the making. Some of the material goes back twenty seven years. So I was so happy to finally get this music out there and start writing new music, which I've been doing like crazy. So cool. Uh, I hope you had wonderful holidays and Happy New Year as we are Happy New Year. Um, recording this on the last day of 2022. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, folks will be hearing this in the second week, I guess, of January. So we're well into it by now. And uh, I think 2023 is going to be a good year. I think the 23 is going to be, be a good year. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, Pete Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Townsend will be appearing shortly. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to do this. So what are we doing, Mark? We're doing your top 10, your, you, Mr. Andy Elidort, your top 10 favorite albums and why. Okay. So we can dig down and drill down as to the, you know, the the psychoacoustics of it, sonically, uh, songwriting, guitar playing, all of it, gear use, all of it. Because I know you know a lot of that stuff, and that's why I wanted to start with you on this. Okay, cool. Well, um, you know, the disclaimer is there's, there's going to be more than 10 records matching, so uh, <laughs> can't, can't help it. But um, can I just tell? Guys, can I just tell everybody? Hang on a second. Let me just tell everybody. When you and I were texting back and forth, you said, only 10? Can we do 10 with, with 90 honorable mentions? <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> well, let's find out how great you really think it is. 
a couple hours or a couple days. <laughs> All right. Coming in at number 10, what do you got? <laughs> oh, I have to start at 10? No, I'm not starting at 10. Oh, you want to start at your your number one favorite one? Yeah, I really do. I okay. want to start at the top. All right. Well, Only because, you know, the building, it's the pyramid of comedy. <laughs> not comedy, though. But, no, I feel like I have to start at the top for it to make sense. Okay. So, for me, if I, you know, just, it's just how I feel. I felt this way a long time. Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan um, is at the top for me. And this is why. It came out in 1966, and I was 10. And I remember the day my sister came home with it. <laughs> and I already was, you know, had known about Bob Dylan, seen him on TV. You know, hard rain's going to fall, times are changing. And I had an awareness to, you know, protest music of the early 60s and uh, is. Uh, anyone our generation, uh, baby boomers, uh, and into you know the next decade or so is well aware. You know, popular music was so tied to socio-political awareness and um, all kinds of you know uh, what was at the time in the sixties called the counterculture um, because it was meant to. I mean, I, it wasn't meant to; it just was counter to popular culture. Um, it wasn't Frank Sinatra, it wasn't Dean Martin, it wasn't the King family, it wasn't um, uh, the Ed Sullivan show, although Ed Sullivan had a lot to do with um, helping the burgeoning counterculture scene by starting with the Beatles and then later having Steppenwolf and the Doors and the Stones, you know, like right there, there they were, you know, um, uh, you know, polluting our young minds. So... <laughs> Um, anyway, Bob had been around and I was aware of him, but Blonde on Blanc comes out and, um, this was like a different thing happening and Bob had been influenced by the Beatles. So I don't want to go off on too long of a thing, but just to get to the, to get right to the music, it's a double album and the song that you would hear on the radio, um, um, you know, you would hear, um, um, you would hear Rainy Day Women on the radio, you know, and, um, and it, it was a fun song, um, and sort of bizarre, you know, like almost this sort of New Orleans-y swing with horns and didn't sound like the Beatles, you know, and it was a blues and, um, but there was something really appealing about it. And then the second song, Pledging My Time, um, is just, is just a blues. And then you get to the third song and we're still on, you know, side one of the first disc, Visions of Johanna. And so I'm 10 and the poetry of Bob's lyrics, sound of his voice, the liveness of the recording, I didn't know any of this then, but I found out later that almost everything was cut live, like completely live. Um, you know, the um, immediacy of the sound of the music, it wasn't something that I could uh, intellectually, um, um, you know, uh, scrutinize, but it, it did affect me, the directness of it and the power of it. Bob's voice and the lyrics and the... Um, 
sort of surrealistic nature of his lyrics. And so just as an album, as a statement, and it's also one of the first double albums. We have to say that too. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of a rock album being a double album. Mm-hmm. Um, another album that's on my list that we're going to get to later is Frank Zappa's um, Freak Out. which might be the first double album in rock. I'm not sure. It's also in 1966. Um, I've heard that, but I could be wrong. But um, eight and at 10 years old, um, I would put on uh, the last, like, second disc, second side was an entire, the whole side was one song, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, um, which, um, I don't know, it's 14 minutes long or something like that, 11, um, almost 12 minutes long. And um, I would just, you know, uh, a 10 year old's version of astral projecting off the planet is what would happen to me when I'd listen to Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And, um, and so I just was aware that I didn't know music could make you feel that way. Um, I love the Beatles. Um, but this was a whole other thing. And then the last thing I'll say about this is it contains what might be, again, it's all ridiculous, but if I had to pick my favorite song, if there was one song, my favorite song of all time, which is completely ridiculous, like I said, it's uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Because the song is, to me, it's like absolutely perfect. Um, the lyrics are totally surrealistic. You know, what is he talking about? You know, these pictures that he's painting... They're amazing. And as you may know the story, he didn't tell the band how many verses there were. So as the song's progressing, the band keeps sort of building up uh, intensity, um, building to a climax, and they keep thinking, okay, we've done four verses, five verses, and so this is the last chorus, so let's really hit this, you know? And then he doesn't end, and he sings another verse, like two more verses, And so it's this incredible ride um, to all those things. Like I said, I couldn't analyze and intellectualize those as a kid. But, um, you know, it's it's number one for me. That's that's the top. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe. I mean, I think you'd agree. It's safe to say he's probably one of the greatest American songwriters of our time. Yes, absolutely. Um, And you could... Some could argue that he was the greatest of his generation. Um, he was so unique. I mean, there's nobody like him. And just to add that I became, like, immediately obsessed at 10 years old with Bob Dylan, and I got, I'm sure my sister got it for me because she's two and a half years older, a famous picture that some, some of your listeners or yourself might know, a black and white. I had this huge poster that I put up on my wall in my bedroom, um, you know, huge meaning like, I don't know, four and a half by three feet or something like that, you know, uh, horizontal. Black and white picture of Bob standing in the woods and he's saluting. And it might have been taken in 1965, the picture, you know, he looks very much like he looks on the cover of Blonde on Blonde. And his lips are like completely dry and cracked. And mm-hmm. as we found out later, he was... Um, 
he likes to speed a lot. <laughs> and he was uh, writing those songs, you know, on uh, Black Beauties and stuff. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't go to bed for weeks. And so anyhow, um, so Bob, you know, he still occupies that space for me as um, creating something that's just, you can't, uh, there's no point in analyzing, at least for me, how it makes me feel, you know. Absolutely. I, I, that's not what I expected, but it totally makes sense at the same time. Number two. Number two is Electric Ladyland, and it's sort of a tie. Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland. Um, you know, there's another half of my brain that says Electric Ladyland is the greatest record ever made in the history of uh, civilization. Another completely ridiculous statement. So it's <laughs> totally subjective. But um, I was, like Bob, like with Bob, I was already aware of Jimi Hendrix. Um, loved Are You Experienced? And I heard it the week it came out or the first couple weeks it came out. I was 11 then, 1967. And I had never heard anything like it. You know, I was, well, I was a big Beatle fan, Stones fan, um, and had started to play guitar that year when I was 11, 1967. But, you know, the first song on our experience is Purple Haze, and my buddy played it for me at 8 o'clock in the morning, first day of seventh grade, and he was like, isn't this the greatest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, because it sounds like the room is spinning. Like, I, like I, I can't even grasp what, like, what this is. Like, it was so jarring. And that's Purple Haze. So, anyhow, I loved it and loved Axis. But when Electric Ladyland came out, so now, 68, you know, it's only a year later, um... I'm uh, 12, and um, I had a, a experience. I was at, up at summer camp, and it was like twilight, late afternoon, and I found myself, I was just by myself in the bunk, and there was a little record player in there, and somebody had that album, and I would put it on, and I was supposed to be, you know, at arts and crafts or playing soccer or archery or some shit, and Gypsy Eyes came on, and Mark, I listened to Gypsy Eyes like five times in a row. I I couldn't, it was just like with Bob, you know, but it was the next level of that, you know, and it was a guitar player. Like it was, had so much to do with the guitar and the sound of the guitar and the expression in the music. And still to this day, I mean, Gypsy Eyes is just, it's just too much. It's like the lyrics, everything. It's um, the way it ends where he's got the two guitars soloing together and they're flanged and they're mm -hmm. sort of each other. And the it's just the most innovative music. Still to this day, it's, I, I can't think of anything I've ever heard that sounds more innovative than the music that's on Electric Ladyland or... Um, Gypsy eyes, you know. So that's number two for me, and it's sort of a little bit of a tie, really, with Blonde on Blonde. Mm -hmm. Another double album, mm -hmm. a lot of music. Mm -hmm. At the time, or I should say a little later, when I formed my first band, um, so it's a bit later, in 74, when I was 18. No exaggeration, I would 
listen to, you know, for people who don't know, Electric Lady on a double album, there's, you know, four sides that you can listen to. Um, and um, I think they're A, B, C, and D, as opposed to one, two, three, four. And I would put on side A, um, uh, and the guys made love into Have You Ever Been to Electric Ladyland? And I would just listen to that, I'm not exaggerating, like 10 times a day for a week. I wouldn't turn the record over. Like I couldn't hear it enough. <laughs> and then I'd finally turn the record over and listen to that side 10 times a day for a week. And, you know, like when I got to 1983, which is almost an entire side, um, it's a second disc for a side. It's virtually the whole side. And then there's this thing called Moon Turn the Tides, which is these tape effects. It's also like this otherworldly. It's so creative. So talking about pushing the boundaries of like what popular music is and what music is. Like what's music? Yeah. You know? I mean, in the liner notes, I just remembered in the liner notes of Electric Ladyland, Jimmy's handwritten crazy note letter from a room full of mirrors ends with, but what is music, my love? Puff, puff. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Um, well, that's... Electric Lane will always sort of be this bar that, that, to me, you know, could never... No one could ever surpass. You know, there's music that's probably as great as it, but I can't imagine anything being more creative, more personal, more expressive, uh and check every possible box, you know, for listening to music and then being a musician and being inspired to play, pick up the guitar and, you know, everything about it. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And for me, I totally agree with you. It is my favorite, all-time favorite Hendrix record. It is the lush quality of it, how it rolls over you. Yeah, that's what really gets me. I, I'll listen to that record lying down with headphones on, not earbuds, headphones, um, and it just it transports you. It, I've I've laid on the bed listening to that record and didn't feel the bed anymore. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you know you started to leave Earth. Yeah, which like the best. I mean, you know, this is what art can do mm -hmm. right uh it can hopefully reflect things about the real world that um, connect with you in some way but represent um the only way to bring into the real world um things that you're not going to um uh, confront be confronted with mm -hmm. uh, somehow mm -hmm. uh, Bob did that by sort of asking these questions it's almost like the best music and art asks you a question about what humanity is and what existence is and what life is about and what's important you know um, this might sound highfalutin but um, it does kind of get to that you know like uh, the power of just a feeling, you know, um, that that 
if if this is true for you, it's true for all music fans. I know it. You know um, that those those things are as real as anything else. Mm-hmm. They're as real as like putting your hand over a fire and feeling how hot it is, and uh, you know, you know, eating something that tastes amazing or um, making love. Uh, there, that's what I've heard. <laughs> Another thing about Electric Ladyland too is not that this was one of those records that the recording console was just as much an instrument as any of the other instruments that the musicians were playing. Well, yeah, so that's another really important thing is the that's what I meant when I said about checking every creative box, you know, um, doing things. And the Beatles had, of course, mm-hmm. were uh, trailblazers in that department. Um, you know, back in 66, let's go back to 66. And uh, I'm going to jump ahead because this is on my list. But, well, I don't know. We'll get to it. Um, but the, I just in general, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles became aware, you know, as soon as they decided they weren't going to tour, that they were going to use the recording studio as um, uh, an instrument, uh, the same as everything else. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's just kind of funny. I mean, I think Freak Out, Frank Zappa, which I want to talk about in a minute, was recorded in 65. Um, and so Frank already, he, you know, he was recording engineer, like, you know, that it was just in his, it was all part of what he did as mm-hmm. an artist. So that was already what he was interested in was tape manipulation and, you know, let's do shit that no one ever did. Right. Um, Because the people that he loved, some of them, the uh, modern classical composers like Edgar Varos and Stravinsky, that was what they were all about Mm -hmm. was we're going to do shit that's going to piss people off. Right. Because they won't know what to do with it. Right. And... And I think the Beatles are really fascinating in that department because, you know, you know, uh, Paul, who some people think of, oh, he's the guy that wrote Silly Love Song. But at the time, he was the one who was really interested in music concrete and crazy sounds and creating tape loops. And Mm -hmm. really, you couldn't get more removed from pop, uh, you know, creating pop music the things that he was doing for fun that mm-hmm. were fast. So, anyhow. Yeah, and, yeah. Co- and conspiring. Hendrix, Hendrix with Eddie Kramer, you know, yes. found the right guy yes. to help him, you know, uh, go down paths that never... Uh, right. And just to add, when, when Electro Leland came out, Hendrix hated the mix and hated the mastering. Really? And he said, yes. He said, this is not what we made in the studio. Like, what we did is so much better than what everyone else hears. And so, you know, you can take that as you may, but it shows that, you know, Jamie was so clear in his mind what he was, what he wanted to do. Like, the famous film of him where he goes, you know... We're not, uh, this isn't a game. Like, we're not fooling around. You know, this isn't some silly thing that we're doing. 
you know, trying to make like a single. You know, this isn't a game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a mission. Yeah, like, and you know, and the other last thing, because we have so many records to talk about, um, is specifically with Gypsy Eyes, that's the song that Jazz Chandler quit on. That's the <laughs> song that made him quit. Yeah, yeah, he wanted he wanted more crosstown traffic. Yeah, and more A Little Miss Strange. Yeah. And the story is that Jimmy did 40 takes of... Uh, Gypsy Eyes. And you can hear, I think, on the Purple Box and some other places, like some of the mixes that had like six more guitar overdubs than what ended up on the record. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't leave the song alone. You know, he was not content. And Chaz was like, I can't make a record like this. We can't play the same song 40 times, like for a week. But I'm going to just say I'm with Jimmy on this one because uh, what came out, as soon as you hear that kick drum panning across and then the pick slide and the tone of the guitar, you've never heard anything like that. No mm-hmm. one has. Mm-hmm. No one has. Yeah. And, and Jimmy, and Jimmy some... was trying to get something. He was trying to do something. Yeah. And in some respects, we still haven't heard anything since then. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, we haven't. I, I did some stuff on my record with panning, and it was just sort of funny because it was like, Bob was like, you know, everyone's listening on their phone or to like a Bluetooth speaker. All that's going to happen is it's just going to go away and then come back. Like, it's not... Uh, you know, oh, it's so sad. Stereo and, it's, you know, and I was like, I don't care. That you makes know? me so sad. <laughs> I really don't give a crap. See, uh, I listened. I've listened to your record with with headphones on, and you, it's it's really it's it's a sonic fun thing to hear well, that record. I, in my tiny, tiny, small way, I try to uh, uh, you know utilize the inspiration from yeah. these things. All right, so number uh, three. Well, you know, we're not going to go on and on, but in, in Hendrix gets two other honorable mentions, even though Electric Ladyland is on the list. But our experience I already mentioned because right. that was the first one. Band of Gypsies has to get mentioned because nothing was like, and still, like Band of Gypsies. Um, the, the songs are unbelievable. Um, the performance is unbelievable. Both sets. What's that? Both sets of that evening. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I'm just to talk about, like, what we heard the first yeah. time we ever heard it. You know, like, the... Well, you know, we are getting both sets because the first side is from the 31st. Um, I can't remember if it's the earlier or late show. I think it's the early show. And side two is from January 1st, I think. That's just my memory. So if I'm wrong out there, you can correct me. The other thing is the tuning's different. Um, they're almost a whole step down on Who Knows and Machine Gun. And then on side two, it's back to a normal half step down. So, you know, he they changed their tuning um, when they showed up the next day a little bit. But, um, and I recently did a show, Mark, at <laughs> Bo's, Bo's Bar in Greenlawn. Bo had been asking me for like two years 
and we finally were able to get it together to do a Bands of Gypsies show. Oh, cool. So we played, the first set was all of Bands of Gypsies. And then the second set was like the best of Jimi Hendrix. And so the second set was like an hour and 20 minutes. It was, um, it was Jimi Hendrix's greatest. It was like, you know, Fire, All on the Watchtower, Hey Joe, um, Wind Cries Mary, uh, Purple Haze, Machine Gun, not Machine Gun, sorry, um, Voodoo Child, Hear My Trainer Coming, Stone Free. Um, I mean, we ended up, we did Up From The Skies, which I didn't even think the wow. band knew. I started doing it as a joke, like in between, and then the bass player knew it. So we ended up playing, I'll, I'll send it to you because it was all recorded. Oh, fantastic. Um, and what's amazing to me, Mark, is people went nuts. Like when we were doing Who Knows, on the record, Jimmy sings, they don't know, and Buddy sings, they don't know, and Buddy mirrors or shadows everything that Jimmy sings. When we did the gig, the audience did it. Cool. And I was like, man, I tried to do this in a bar in 1974 and like got thrown out. <laughs> like you couldn't play Voodoo Child in a bar in 1974. <laughs> And now I'm doing it, and like everyone's singing along, and the place was packed, and people, and so we're gonna do an RE Experience night um, in February. Oh so man, we're gonna play all of our experience. That's challenging. Yes, sir. But That's we used challenging, to, especially like the title to, track. Title track is challenging, absolutely, and so is Third Time from the Sun. Yeah, but but we used to in '74, '75, my first band. I mean, we we did all of. Um, uh, third Stone, you know, like, I mean, like, just like the record, mm -hmm. as close as we could get it. Although your world's wondrous and superior cackling hand, you're people I do not understand, and so to you I must put an end. <laughs> and you'll never hear surf music again. And what we found out later on the outtakes is that Jimmy said something after that that they didn't include on the yeah. original record. Do you know what, I'm, no. you know what it is? No. So when he says, and you'll never hear surf music again, he goes, that sounds like a lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> Hysterical. That's great. Okay, so basically we just did three. Okay, so three was what? Three is Electric Ladyland. No, two was Electric Ladyland. Your Blonde on Blonde was one. Oh, no, 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 you're right. Oh, I skipped one by accident. Okay, so three? Oh, wait, no, not really by accident. We'll keep it that way. Yeah. One's Blonde on Blonde. Two's Electric Ladyland with the two honorable mentions, our experience. Right. Three is Revolver. Ah, yeah. And, um, and with a, you know, addendum, of course, of the White Album, um, because it was... Uh, two years later, 66, 68, but equally as just groundbreaking and um, um, this voluminous thing with so many songs and so creative and like it's it, it, to this day. I mean, oh, and I should say that when it came to sequencing on my album, which is a double album, I used the white album as my template mm. uh, for sequencing because I thought, well, the White Album, you have so many songs that are really different from one another. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Revolution. Yeah, I mean, you have Number 9, but then you have um, Julia, and you have I Will, 
and then you have um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Back in the USSR, uh, Cry Baby Cry. Honey Pie. Long, long, long. George Harrison's probably the most underappreciated song on that double album because yeah. Helter Skelter, like this, there's too many songs, you know, to talk about. Yeah. And the White Album. Um, but Long, 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 I learned just this past summer. And it's unbelievably creative. Like, it's a phenomenal. So, anyway. Um, but my real choice is Revolver because, again, I'm 10. It's 1966. So everything is context. And I already love the Beatles. And you knew something was up from the first song, Taxman, you know. They were... It was bluesy and it was rocking a little harder, you know. And Paul's guitar solo. Well, and I didn't know who it was, of course. But, yeah, uh, that blew my mind. I mean, that solo blows my mind to this day. It is sped up. I mean, no. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yes, I believe it is sped up um, a, a little bit. Maybe like a whole step. But um, yes, his solo is incredible. Um, and we had Rubber Soul before that. Yeah. Which was, you know, incredible. Yeah. But Revolver, most people will attest, you know, and the first song, I of course learned this later, but the song that really etched it for me, and it turns out it's the first song they recorded for Revolver, which makes it even crazier, is Tomorrow Never Knows. Right. That's that's the first track they did for that album. And, you know, Oh, the bass drum. Is, that bass drum is just unbelievable. And the sound of the snare. You yeah. Know? And then that... Mm-hmm. So that's the Paul making these crazy tapes at mm-hmm. home. And now, you know, because we can read about these things and learn that tape loops were like a new thing that modern classical composers were using and mm-hmm. people were using pop music. And the guys had a stand in Abbey Road, you know, or EMI, probably Abbey Road, you know, holding pencils, <laughs> you know, as this yeah. giant piece of tape that Paul yeah. made at home and around, and they played with the very speed. And, oh, yeah. you got to give a shout-out to Jeff Emmerich on stuff like that. Absolutely. And then John's famous line where he said, I want to sound like I'm, you know, swinging from the top of the Himalayas, you know, my voice. And uh, they came up with the automatic double tracking. And so Revolver, um, uh, hold on a second. Um, uh, You know, push the boundaries, of course, um, uh, in every way. Hold on a second. What is going on here? Oh, here it is. Uh, okay, so um, well, now this now is you know the I should look at the American version because that's what I heard. There's so many songs on the CD version that we didn't hear at the time. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Eleanor Rigby. There was nothing like that, right? Love you too had sitar on it, mm-hmm. you know, real sitar. Um, here, there, and everywhere. It's, it's an incredibly beautiful song. Um, she said, she said is, you know, comes from taking acid and it sounds like an acid trip, you know, 
I mean, it really does. It does. Um, and the way George winds his guitar part, she said, you know, I know what it's like to be like he's mirroring the melody mm-hmm. between the vocal lines. And then the bridge goes into a different time signature, like it goes into three, four, from four, mm-hmm. four. It's just, it's just amazing. And then, um, good day, sunshine for no one. Got to get you into my life. You know, uh, another cool guitar solo on there. Guitar work. Oh, just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that was just another, wow. You know, like music can make you feel this way. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know that that was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Rubber Soul was the gateway to Revolver. You couldn't have had one couldn't have happened without the other because Revolver to me was like them laying down a gauntlet, saying, "This is what you get. You get what you get. You don't get upset. This is it. <laughs> Take it." Yeah, and I think that when they did Rubber Soul, I think in '65, you know, they were still sort of finishing up their existence as a band that did gigs um so it is incredibly uh creative you know of course and again you know there's all these songs on the cd version that weren't on our capital albums right like drive my car right and um uh nowhere man you know um that wasn't on there but weight was on there Mm -hmm. um, uh, Run for Your Life, uh, Michelle, The Word, um, Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me. Um, a lot of acoustic guitar. And a lot and, of pop sensibility still left in there. Yeah. So, and then that sort of trippy cover, you know, um, yeah. it's just such a reflection of the time so yeah that was a clear stepping stone but but it was like by the time they got to to revolver we're not touring anymore and we're going to start to experiment in the studio Mm -hmm. and then what comes next sergeant pepper you know where it was really like they went for a different drum sound on every song like the thing that you're not supposed to do yeah like, let's get a drum sound, and then we have this wonderful drum sound, and they're like, no, 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 yeah. no. And they're doing it with a four-track. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's insane. And and so when you listen, it's not as much on um, Revolver, but it's really on Sgt. Pepper that, you know, you go from fixing a hole to when I'm 64, mm-hmm. Sgt. Pepper, to Good Morning, to Benefit of Mr. Kite. Every song is just sounds... Like it, it's so different. But anyway, so uh, we've rocketed to number three, which is right. Revolve. Right. Number Ready for f- number four? Number four. <laughs> number four is Cream Wheels of Fire. Wheels of Fire, okay. Um, with a slash live Cream Volume One. Okay. Uh, because. Once the live Korean volume one came out, forget it. I could could not listen to that enough. And my favorite track on live Korean volume one is um, "Anesthesia," the first track. It's just it's too much. But 
Wheels of Fire, same thing. It's 1968. Um, what an amazing summer for music. You know, you've got Electric Ladyland. You've got the White Album. Um, you have Jeff Beck's Beckola, which we're going to get to in a minute. But Wheels of Fire, another double album. Um, the first disc is Studio, and the second disc is Them Alive. And, you know, I'm 12, so what do I know about Cream? You know, I knew Disraeli Gears mm-hmm. uh, because I heard Sunshine Love on the radio. Um, and started to, you know, like my friend's older brother had the album, so I got to hear the other songs, you know, Tales of Rave Ulysses. And um, it's funny, a student asked me the other day, he said, I don't know what to practice. And my standard answer is everything. But then I said, if you really don't know what to play, just play World of Pain by Cream, you know, because it's so nuts. You know, it's Jack Bruce, but, um, you know, um, outside my window is a dream. Outside my window. Just from time signatures alone. Yeah, I mean, but it makes it doesn't make any freaking sense. Like, you know, what key is it in? But at the it, same time, it makes perfect sense. Well, yeah. Is there a reason? gets the lyrics. Is there a reason for today? Whatever. <laughs> so anyway, but Wheels of Fire, you know, um, let me bring it up for a second. Um just to talk about the studio side. So mm-hmm. we see this incredibly creative band when they're in the recording studio. Big, giant props to Felix Popolardi <coughs> for producing them and doing what he did. So, you know, the album starts with White Room. Like, forget it. Is there a better electric guitar tone that you could point to that exists? Mm-hmm. And then Clapton decided to overdub single note uh, triads like a string section of a violin with this massive vibrato you know no one ever heard that it didn't exist um it's it's too much and white room is certainly an incredible song and the lyrics are incredible i interviewed pete brown once and i asked him i said you know how did you write you know the lyrics like the lyrics to white room are so uh, they feel trippy and surrealistic and um, there's just this otherworldly heaviness to it, you know, and it's so dramatic. And, In a white room with black curtains near the station. You know, like you're immediately in this world, you know. Black roof country, no gold pavements, diet starlings. It's like it's poetry and it's what the hell is he talking about? Mm-hmm. So I asked him, I said, so Pete, like, how did you write this? And he goes, 
Well, at the time, I lived in this small apartment that was all white and it had black curtains and it was near the station. I go, you know, you're ruining this off. You have ruined this off. <laughs> That's funny. Because I was in this white room and, yeah. had black curtains and it was near the station. I'm like, you know what? Like, I hate you. That's that's classic. And then, oh, well, okay. Here you were thinking it was total psychedelia. And yeah, I know. <laughs> it was like so matter of fact. And then I go, okay, but the next line, black roof country. What the fuck is that? And he goes, well, it was up high and all the other buildings were low and they were these flat roofs and they were tar. So it just was black roof country is what it looked like. Okay, so now we're getting, he's getting creative, yeah, right? Yeah, now he's getting us No gold pavements. You know, so it's like, okay, it's, we're talking about like, you know, lower middle class, you know, uh, England, black roof country, no gold pavements, like don't kid yourself. Um, and, and then cause he's a poet, it's, it, it starts to get, you know, personal, um, at the party, she was kindness in a hard crowd, you know, like. And then a word that doesn't exist, obsolation for the old queen now forgotten, you know. So anyhow, uh, what an amazing piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, White Room is all by itself. Still on the radio all the time. Jack's vocal. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Going back to that vocal, you remember the British crooner Anthony Newley? Of course. It Doesn't that remind you of that? That, that descending nature and how, you know, that... It's dramatic, and Anthony Neely, it's definitely a lot of drama. Um, but, you know, um, Jack uh, had done that um, on other songs, like on Disraeli Gears, We're Going Wrong, <laughs> is so dramatic, you know. Um, and that Irish tenor thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I mean... He was like a boy soprano, you know, like um, when he was young. And I might be screwing that up too, but I did a four and a half hour interview with Jack in 1990 at Electric Ladyland when he was recording the album Question of Time. That was one of the greatest experiences of my life to spend four and a half hours with Jack Bruce. Um, just nuts, completely nuts. Um, but let's go back to Wheels Farm. And then the second track sitting on top of the world you know i'm 12 i'm learning about blues i had heard some blues when i was younger because my mom had some blues records real blues records like lead belly and um lonnie johnson stuff mm -hmm. so i'm aware of it but you know clapton was just the king you know i mean he was the freaking king and um and and in '67, I think because everybody was so tuned into because of Disraeli Gears, then we got a hold of Fresh Cream, which nobody really knew about because it wasn't a hit over here. You know, I definitely heard Fresh Cream after Disraeli Gears, and then somebody was like, "Well, he's also on this John Mayall record, you know, this Blues Breakers record," and so, you know, for a young aspiring guitar player and and that would be millions of us here in the United States that's we, then we started to understand why you know Clapton as God was a thing you mm -hmm. know in London in 66 alright third song is Passing the Time followed by As You Said 
followed by Press Rat Warthog. And I mean, come on, you know, as you said, is one of the most brilliant, that's your pure Jack Bruce. Um, you know, Celtic, English folk influences, weird guitar tuning. The song's in five different key, key signatures, I mean, time signatures. It's, I mean, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. His vocal is this, this towering, soaring vocal. It's not pop. Is that pop music? I mean, it was. Well, for the, for the time, yeah. And, ten ten uh, years later, it wouldn't be. Right. But again, what, you know, what am I going on? I mean, this is a new album, and I'm 12. Right. And so you go, hey, have you heard this record by some band called Cream? It's called Wheels of Fire. It's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> politician, mm-hmm. genius, triple track guitars, nothing like that. Yeah. Th- those were the days. Another Jack. Unbelievable. There's nothing like that. You know, the uh, musical references that where that song comes from. It's just genius. It really is. Then they do Born Under a Bad Sign, you know, Albert King. Then Deserted Cities of the Heart, you know, which is unbelievable. Like, that's Pete Brown again, you know. Um, Deserted Cities of the Heart. (laughs) This gives you some stuff to think about when you're 12. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's a little quiet nod to disc two, which is all live, which is Crossroads and Spoonful. <laughs> Train Time and Toad, which is with Ginger Rickers drum solo. Crossroads, mm-hmm. of course, some people would say that, you know, certainly up there for a contender greatest live blues rock star solo of all time. Certainly everybody had to learn it. Yeah. And Spoonful is, there's nothing like it. You know, trio rock, uh, blues rock improvisation. And Jack said later, and this made sense to me later, he said, well, we were just trying to sound like Ornette Coleman. Um, the only thing was that Clapton didn't know he was supposed to be Ornette. <laughs> so, anyway, that's my... We've, we've That's number four. Number four. So, I don't know if we need to pick up the pace there, but... No, we're good. Number five. Okay. Number five is Miles Davis. And, um, again, it's a bit of a tie, but for me, it's Miles Smiles. And not a record that's even that well known among um, uh, Miles Davis fans. You know, it's not as as known as the other one that it shares this slot with, which is Kind of Blue. Um, you know, Kind of Blue was one of the most successful jazz records of all time, and um, hearkened a brand new sound in jazz. Um, with the way Bill Evans played and, um, you know, songs like So What and All Blues mm-hmm. and Freddie Freeloader. And um, so Kind of Blue was, you know, a mark of, you know, a turning point in music in every way. But when you get a little further down the road, Miles Miles is one of the last records that he recorded with his second great quintet with um, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, and um, Wayne Shorter. And 
many of these songs are Wayne Shorter compositions. And um, so to this day, it just sounds, I can't think of anything that's more really modern or played with such brilliance um, um, language-wise and technically. You know, like the technical brilliance of, of each musician was you know, at an apex. Um, Orbits, Circle, Footprints, Dolores, Freedom Jazz Dance, Gingerbread Boy. I mean, that album is, it's just too much. It's too much. And I would sit and try to learn like one lick from anybody's solo, unlike any one of the songs. Like I'd try to learn her, uh, like two lines from Herbie Hancock's piano solo on Orbits. It's just, it's um, abstract expressionist, mm -hmm. you know. It's like, and I'm an art fan and artist, and art was my first love, and I was so involved in art as a young person. I ended up going to college for art and not music, getting a degree in art. And abstract expressionism is my favorite uh, uh, art form. So... This music was a reflection of that, and very much a reflection of 1967. So what theme are we on here? Well, we're on the 1966, 1967, 1968 theme, right? Mm -hmm. um, of music that really represented the times, uh, you know, in its own distinct way. So anyhow, that's my number five. Okay. Number six. Number six is Ornette Coleman, hmm. Science Fiction. Um, What's the name of the record? Science Fiction. Oh, yeah, okay. And the reason it is Science Fiction uh, is because that was my introduction um, to Ornette. Hold on. I'm, <coughs> I, I can't type, you know. I could tell you things would work. There we go. Um, it was 1973, and I was getting drunk in a playground after having a jam session with my bass player and drummer. And we had a little radio, a little portable radio, and playing WRVR, which was the jazz station, New York jazz station. And this music came on, and it was just sax, bass, and drums, like, going crazy. And it's just to my, to my ears that we're still pretty uneducated in um, jazz and modern jazz. It sounded like Hendrix, you know. It sounded like the Jimi Hendrix trio, Mitch mm -hmm. Mitchell uh, and Noel Redding and Hendrix or, you know, uh, Buddy Miles and uh, Billy Cox. Just super creative like these guys three guys like playing the daylights out of their instruments and somehow uh, expressing this incredible individuality on their instruments but then creating this group sound that all went together like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and so I didn't know what it was I didn't catch the name of the artist but I caught the name of the song so the next day, and I had just started going to School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, and this is like within the first two weeks of school, there was a guy I met 
uh, who I had found out he played saxophone. Um, Chuck Vertagic, who, um, anyway, I said, hey, Chuck, I heard this jazz song on the radio last night, and maybe you would know what it is. I only know the title of the song. And he said, what's the name of the song? And I said, the song's called The Jungle is a Skyscraper. And he went, oh, that's Ornette Coleman. It's on an album called Science Fiction. Now, I told the story to um, uh, Pat Metheny because he's an Ornette Coleman fanatic. Mm-hmm. And he was floored because he was like, no one would know that. <laughs> And I mean, almost no one. <clears throat> like, I'm asking a random person. I'm, you know, he answered it like if you said, "I heard something on the radio, um, jazz, all blues." You know who that is? You know, um, yeah, it's Miles Davis, um, or my funny Valentine or something. You know, around midnight. Oh yeah, it's Lonnie's Funk. You know, jazz people would know that. But he answered so matter of factly, it was like that, and. This is 1973. That album had come just come out in 72. You know, like it was it was like Ornette's latest album. So I just didn't think it was a big deal. Like I was like, he answered it so matter of factly. And I went and bought the record and, you know, lost my mind over it. And to this day, I mean, after that, no exaggeration, I bought every Ornette Coleman album I could find. And uh, they weren't all available. And then they would start to pop up. And as soon as I, like New York is now, and um, I got the early ones, Tomorrow is the Question, and Shape of Jazz to Come. Um, This is our music. But um, uh, one of the reasons I brought it up with Pat Matheny is because he recorded the song Law Years, on the album um, Question and Answer that mm-hmm. recorded with uh, Roy Haynes and Dave Holland. And it was funny. He said to me, hey, is that song called Law Years or Lawyers? And I had never thought that Law Years was like a play on lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, it's called Law Years. And he was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but Rock the Clock Charlie Hayden's playing bowed upright bass with a wah-wah pedal. You know? That's insane. So anyhow, uh, number six, science fiction, Ornette Coleman. That got me started on my Ornette Coleman journey. It was uh, amazing. Number seven. Number seven is, now of course it has an addendum, Attached, but it's a Mahavishnu Orchestra Intermounting. Which one? Intermounting Flame, the first Mahavishnu Orchestra album. And the reason it's their first album, although the addendum is the second album, um, Birds of Fire. Mm-hmm. But the reason it's Intermounting Flame for me is because um, in 1972, when this was a brand new album, my drummer, who was also 16, I was 16 at the time. My drummer's older brother, who was all of like 21 or something, took us to Carnegie Hall to see the show. 
this is in July of 72. Um, it was called Newport Comes to Carnegie Hall, Newport Jazz Festival. And it was Cannibal Adderley Quintet playing all soul jazz at the time, which was like a new thing. You know, they started in the late 60s. And Oscar Peterson solo, and then this some band that m most people never heard of, this new band called Mavish New Orchestra. And I think I had a tiny awareness of John McLaughlin because he was on Bitches Brew, um, uh, Miles Davis. And on the way to the show, we stopped at someone's house who played two records for us. My Goals Beyond, which is an earlier McLaughlin album that's all acoustic, and Larry Coriel's Spaces. Now, I'm 16, I don't know shit, you know? And of course, now, you know, those records, both of them, are considered, you know, two of the most important records in modern jazz, certainly guitar, uh, Coriel's Spaces as well. So, anyhow. We go to the show. I'm 16. I don't know anything. Kenwell Adderley's great. Phenomenal. Oscar Peterson solo. Takes three encores. It's amazing. Brings down the house. And then they roll out this, like, 10-piece clear fives drum kit with a gong. And Marshall, Stack, and these guys start wandering out on stage. They truly look like they don't belong together. You know? Billy walked out, in my memory, walked out first, and he's just this black dude who's like, looks like the Hulk, like he's wearing a vest, no shirt, like he's just muscles yeah. and shorts and boots and the aviators. And and I'm like, that, he, that's like a serious dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, think about him, man. And, you know, we smoked some pot, so I was stoned too. And then Jan Hammer comes out, you know, and he looks kind of like an accountant. You know, he's bald and little, like, pudgy guy, kind of. And then Jerry Goodman, he's got his long hair like this and an electric violin playing through acoustic amps. And then McLaughlin wearing these, like, white sort of, you know, sort of uh, oversized clothes. Yeah, the linen very short hair and a double neck Gibson and Rick Laird on bass who kind of looked like John a bit but I mean it was like these five guys like how are they even in a band together and then they go into meeting the spirits and Mark I didn't I don't think I breathed you know until about two weeks ago uh, <laughs> and the second song they did was Noonward Race, which is just the drums and guitar together, which was a theme that's borrowed from, I think, from Jack Johnson. You know, and um, just this conversation between drums and guitar and the level of virtuoso musicianship from both guys. I mean, we, it was just, it was too much. Like, it was too, it was, and we went and got the record, and that's when, you know, we discovered 16 speed on the uh, turntable. And, um, you know, Vital Transformation, the first song on side two, 
But on 16, it went like this. And I was like, well, I can figure that out. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, and then a year later in 73, Birds of Fire came out and we went to that, see that too at Avery Fisher Hall, like eighth row center. And I don't know what to say. I mean, nothing was like my audition orchestra at that time. Now, was that, was that the record that ended up inspiring Jeff Beck to end up doing Blow by Blow or was it the second record? Well, it was neither, but, uh, we're going to get to that shortly. Okay. But I can answer your question. What Jeff said, he was certainly very inspired by McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. But he said, um, and it's still right around the same time as 73, the record that really inspired him to do Blow by Blow was Billy Cobham's first solo album, Spectrum, oh. with, with Tommy Boland's guitar playing. Mm-hmm. Because he's a rock guitar player. And he was a rock guitar player playing. I love that record. Basically, uh, it's, well, it's it's number eight on the list. Oh, okay. So, uh, oh, uh, no, it's not. I'm sorry. It's number eight on the uh, part two of the list. Okay. Um, but um, he was a rock guitar player. Like, you could hear that. Like, this guy was a rock guitarist playing a Stratocaster through Marshalls with a Wawa pedal and mm-hmm. a Echoplex. Mm-hmm. But he's playing Fusion. So it wasn't as fusion-y as Mahavishnu Orchestra. It was more blues rock. And Tommy Bolton's playing. He was all of 21 or 2 at the time. He's a virtuoso, you know. Like his, his solo on Stratus is completely insane. Jeff said that record and Tommy's playing is what made him do, was one of the main inspirations is probably a better way to say it for uh, Blow by Blow. So anyhow, uh, number seven on the top ten is My Vision Orchestra, Intermountain Flame, Birds of Fire. And, you know, we tried to learn every song as hard as it was. Dance of the Maya, I still play. Um, just for fun, um, I have one keyboard player to play with, and he knows it. So when we're in soundcheck, he'll always just look at me and go... <laughs>
Okay, number eight. Number eight is the Rolling Stones. As we come back to the land of, uh, you know, the living. <laughs> uh, Sticky Fingers. Um, 1971. Mm-hmm. And then there is, of course, a little addendum, you know, nod to an earlier record, 69, I think, uh, 70 maybe. Get Your Yayos Out. Mm. Um, because before Sticky Fingers came out, and Yayos was before it, I heard, you know, Midnight Rambler um, on the radio, and, I mean, it was, it was too much, too much. Like, it's just so phenomenal. And as I was already wanting to be a guitar player, Mick Taylor's guitar playing on Get Your Guys Out um, is it's just too much. Like, you know, on Jumpin' Jack Flash and on um, Midnight Rambler, those are some of the first licks I ever learned. Um, uh, like solo blues type licks uh, from Midnight Rambler. So, but the real one here, number eight, is Sticky Fingers. Um, Sticky Fingers came out. I was seventy one. I was fifteen, and um, you know what's the first thing you hear is Brown Sugar. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I mean, for me, it's the greatest record they ever made. You know, some people say Exile um, but Exile doesn't have it's just not as um, tight it's different it's uh, fantastic but it's not it, it a double album it doesn't fall into that you know single disc sort of uh, uh, checking the box of a pop record that comes in at mm-hmm. you know I get 30, it. 38 minutes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I get it. I think it was but, the methodology of the, the way they recorded those records. They recorded those those two records completely different. Yes, absolutely. Because Brown, because uh, Sticky Fingers started in Muscle Shoals. Right. Or, you know, uh, some of it was done there, and there are those other versions of some of the songs. And so, and then a lot of it, I think, is Olympic, and the Olympic sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Like the song, uh, I Got the Blues. It's just the sonic quality of that song mm-hmm. is is so phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to check. I have my Rolling Stones complete recording book that tells you the where stuff is recorded. And it's a great book. I mean, Exile was done all, what, pretty much on location, right? That was with the remote truck. I mean, I think some of this might have been done with the remote truck, too, but um, that was done in France. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't called Redlands, but it was something like that. Um, And it was a weird environment, and, you know, all the stories about the way Exile got done are weird, where Keith wouldn't come downstairs for three days or something, and um, Bill Wyman had to drive, you know, or Charlie had to drive, like, four hours to get there and yeah. then Heath wouldn't come down from upstairs and he would be pissed and so that's why Jimmy Miller is actually the drummer on some of the songs on Exile um Exile's weird you know yeah but it's great yeah great tunes just a very different application I think of Sticky, Sticky Fingers is the band Sticky Fingers is focused mm-hmm. every song is a 10 mm-hmm Every song. Mm-hmm. Sway is ridiculous. Yeah. 
wild horses. There was nothing like wild horses. Yeah. It could always be thought of as a towering achievement for the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. Uh, lyrically, maybe, again, it's silly to pick favorites, but among the best lyrics Mick Jagger oh, that ever. song can still make me weep well it also shows that Mick Jagger is one of the best country songwriters yeah you know um, like Memory Motel or Girl oh. With Far Away Eyes I mean these are country songs so great yeah and um, the lyrics of Wild Horses are, are, are just phenomenal and the song's phenomenal then you have Can't You Hear Me Knocking is not that, is with that open tuning that open tuning and and those those figures are just incredible yes absolutely amazing it's, everything about it i just so, i love to play that song it's so creative um you know uh, for those out there who might care like a lot of key songs it's an open g yeah i keep one guitar in that tuning all the time song when I hear that song <laughs> when I hear that song I think of, I can't help but think of New York City and then you got uh, where, where am I oh, oh yeah my. at the end playing on there man well it's a whole other song it's a whole other thing right it wasn't even supposed to be there yeah you got um Bitch, yeah. Um, I mentioned I got the blues. Sister Morphine is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dead Flowers is one of the greatest. Again, country song. Another country, country song. song. Yeah, absolutely. A fucking straight country song. Absolutely. Have you ever heard Towns Van Zandt's version of Dead Flowers? No. I think it's. It, in fact, it is. It's in the Big Lebowski soundtrack. No. Oh. Oh. I haven't seen the Big Lebowski in a while. the first time I heard it and he does it in C so it's like well when you're you know that town's fancy mm-hmm. voice well when you're sitting there in your silk posted chair it's live and it's just him and another guitar player talking to those rich folks that you know you know 
total towns. Mm-hmm. But is there a better country song than this? No, it's 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 a. Yeah, man. It, it doesn't get better than that. Mm-mm. You know? But Where? I'll be in my basement room with a needle and a spoon and another girl to take my pain away. <laughs> Where do you land on Let It Bleed? I fucking love Let It Bleed. Me too, man. Oh, much. oh, my God. But that was like the triumvirate because we came from Let It Bleed into Beggars. Beggars Banquet is nuts. Mm-hmm. It's just... Jigsaw puzzle and parachute woman mm-hmm. and um, no expectations, no expectations. You know, like what an album! What an album! Um, Street Fighting Man is on that album, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, Dear Doctor, Salt of the Earth, mm, Dear Doctor. What an album, Beggars is. Yeah, but Let It Bleed. Beggars, and then they hit Sticky Fingers. Yeah. See, for me, it was it was so funny. I have friends who were so about the 60s Rolling Stones, but for me, it's Let It Bleed On was my Rolling Stones. Well, before Let It Bleed, I think the album before that is Satanic Majesty. Yeah, I didn't like that. That record didn't do it for me. Failure. It was, I think it was kind of a failure because they were... Oh, the Beatles did, you know, Sergeant Pepper. Right. We need to compete with that. Right. But, you know, I I love Satanic Majesties because, you know, I, I love 2,000 Light Years From Home. And I even like, you know, songs like Citadel. And um, I like the trippiness of it. But it is funny because there are people I know that, like, they don't like Ruby Tuesday. Like, they didn't like the album Flowers. Um, you know, um... But I, I don't understand how you could not like that. Ruby Tuesday is genius to me. Oh, it's a but great that's song, still, yeah. That's still the Brian, you know, Brian's hand there, which was really interesting. They had to recreate themselves after the failure of Satanic Majesties, and mm-hmm. it certainly, you know, said, well, we're going to get back to the things that we really love, which is, you know, blues and Motown and um, that grew, you Come know. On, yeah. And so Keith was asked once, you know, how do you think records have changed? And he said, the only thing that I, and he was asked this question, you know, 40 years ago in the 80s. And he said, the only thing that really changed was the sound of the bass and drums. And that's why a record will sound modern as opposed to not modern. But the guitars aren't that different. And I thought it was a really interesting point. And you can't say he's wrong, you know. Um, That that's part of what made those rock records, because they were, you know, still following their influences Mm -hmm. of Chicago Blues and stuff. So anyhow, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like the Stones found a new direction uh, with lead. And um, I got to love Black and Blue. I, I love that record. I love Black and Blue. Um, Black and Blue is weird uh, because... uh, Well, you got a lot of guitar players on that record. 
Well, because of the songs that are on it. Um, Cherry Old Baby. You got Hot Stuff. I mean, there was there was the disco thing was coming in there. The reggae thing was coming in there. The blues. There yeah, was Hand of Fate, you know. Well, I was just going to say, you know, there aren't that many songs on Black and Blue that uh, are, to me, as um, powerful as It's Only Rock and Roll or uh, Goat's Head Soup. Um, I mean, because Angie is amazing. Mm-hmm. Goat's Head Soup. But, hold on, i got to go back to that. Just like want to say, folks, as he's tuning... I feel bad for any of the other artists who are going to do their top ten because Andy prepared. <laughs> well, I just thought about it. I'm going to fuck it up. But I'm trying to play the song the right way. That's it. It's, it's, and is that tuning again? So terrific. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, they, they found a new thing, and, and then by the time you get to Tattoo You, like, forget it, which there's a whole other story. Tattoo You is, was like it's a bunch of leftovers. Right, yeah, leftovers from Black and Blue, leftovers from a whole bunch of records, yeah. Leftovers from... Um, Start Me Up is from the Black and Blue Sessions. Right, and um, some girls, you know, that some, right. girls, some girls is amazing. I love that record. I'm not crazy about the mix of that record. I think it's a little glassy, but the songs are insane on that record. I mean, Girl with the Faraway Eyes, another, there's well, another country song. Unbelievable. Um, there's, uh, there's so, I, I have to bring it up, but um, there's so many songs on Some Girls. And what's interesting is, you know, Ronnie comes in at Black and Blue, and um, Ronnie's contributions, like his um, lap steel, pedal steel playing on Some Girls. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like, look at the way Some Girls begins. The first song is Miss You. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. And then when the whip comes down, then just my imagination, so they're going back to their Motown thing. Right. Far away eyes, respectable is almost like a nod to punk. Was coming complete punk, punk. shattered you know, to punk song. Shattered, yeah. yeah. And beast of burden's amazing. And then you have before they make me run, which was Keith <sighs> at his most fucked up. Uh, yeah. Saying fuck all of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. After all is said and done, I will walk. Yeah. Because he was in court and he meant he won't get um, sentenced. Right. He'll, that's what he meant. Yeah. Like, that song it, is what. It's so great. It's like, I will walk before they make me run. That song is what heroin sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Happy also. Happy too, right? Absolutely. 
And he said he, when he wrote happy, he was probably the most unhappy he ever was. <laughs> sarcasm. Okay. That's sarcasm. All right. So All right. that was Sticky Fingers is number eight. Got a lot more records to get to. Yeah. Here. Sticky Fingers is number eight. Number nine. Number nine is Blue Train by John Coltrane. Mm. Now, some people might say, why didn't you say Giant Steps? And so I'm going to lump in along with Blue Train, the other Coltrane records that were so important to me and important to everyone. Giant Steps, Love Supreme, and then these two records that are less known, but, you know, no less phenomenal. Transition, I don't know if you ever heard Transition. Mm -hmm. Transition is, I heard Transition and it scared the shit out of me, Mark. (laughs) I, I never forget where I was. I was at my friend's house, who's a jazz guitar player, and this bass player friend of mine said, oh, well, you need to hear this. And he put on transition. And I was scared. I was sitting there scared. And Coltrane sound is sick. But the reason I picked Blue Train is because not just the songs, like Blue Train, Moments Notice, Locomotion, I'm Old Fashioned, and Lazy Bird. Every song is like so important in the jazz canon. But... Lee Morgan, who was my introduction to trumpet player Lee Morgan, who, if I had to pick, and it's going to sound nuts, is probably my favorite jazz musician ever of all time. And I would may even make the ridiculous argument that he's the greatest jazz musician of all time, or certainly deserves consideration, because he was complete technical. Technically, he was a complete master of the trumpet, but he also played from so many different angles. He could burn you to death with technique or bebop language or complexity and, you know, uh, polyphony, you know, pantonal. And he could just be funny, you know? He could play stuff that was funny on a dime, like effortlessly. And so I always sort of joke that Blue Train's really a Lee Morgan record. because he almost, you know, overshadows Coltrane, mm-hmm. which is pretty tough to do. But, um, you know, it's Miles' band, really, um, but with Lee. So it's uh, Paul Chambers on bass, Philly Joe Jones, uh, Kenny Drew playing piano, and Curtis Fuller on trombone. And, um, you know, just the song Blue Train, like, and Coltrane's solo. So, that's also just for me personally. It doesn't get what you would call modern jazz, 1957. Uh, it doesn't get better than that. Cool. Number 10. Okay, so number 10. We've reached the end of the official list, which you now you probably hang up on me. You don't want to hear my other one. But we're going to have to really truncate to squeeze the other ones in, which I'm sure would make you happy. Number 10. <laughs> is an album that's not well-known, and it's almost impossible to find, but it's the first one I ever heard by this artist, Pat Martino, Desperado. Mm. And Pat Martino is a jazz guitar player um, that jazz guitar players know, but many people don't know Pat Martino. Um, I don't even know if Desperado is on um, Apple Music. It's not. Um, it's on YouTube but um, 
I have to admit, though, like before I heard Desperado, I did hear Sonny on the radio on RV Oregon, and that's why my number 10 has a uh, addendum, which is Palmatino Live with an exclamation point. And that's the album that had Sonny on it. And Sonny got played on the radio because Sonny was a pop song people knew. Mm-hmm. It was this mind-boggling, um, <clears throat> endlessly brilliant, uh, you know, just water flowing from a broken tap style of guitar playing that no one, that no one could or can do like Pat Martino. Um, and like Lee Morgan, uh, it's representative of someone with the greatest technique imaginable where he can execute anything that he thinks of. And so he has the ability to turn on a dime and express himself um, beautifully um, in this just extraordinary way. Um, there's a level of musicianship that you could only dream of. And I mean, George Benson, you know, his famous story is he came to New York and thinking, you know, he was a young guy and he's like, you know, I'm a badass. And George Benson is a badass. And walked into some tiny club like Folk City or something and saw some guitar player he never heard of. And after one song, walked out and said, I'm, gonna, I'm going home and practicing because I'm crazy. And it was Pat Martino. <laughs> But he did. He he said, "If this is what people sound like in New York City, like I'm screwed." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's famously on the record and happy to say that you know his love for Pat yeah. and they were such good friends. Yeah. And so, anyhow, the other thing about Desperado is Pat plays a twelve string, plays an electric twelve string, um, that was either an Ibanez or a Yamaha that he said his wife bought him for $80. And it's just crazy. And I recently found pictures of him with George Benson from the, around that era. And he graduated to a Gibson 12 string, but to play bebop, you know, hard bop at a billion miles an hour on guitar is hard enough, but nah, Pat's like, I'm going to do it on a 12 string. Yeah. That's insane. And um, so you make, you, you'll have to go on YouTube or maybe some other streaming services to find Desperado, but it, it's completely worth it. Um, there's a song on it called Express that's very complicated in a drop D tuning. And I was interviewing um, Jim Hall in like 1990 and in his little apartment in uh, West Village. And... Um, we were playing guitar and it's Jim Hall. He's a very nice person. And then we started talking about Pat Martino and Jim was funny. He said, Oh, anytime I hear somebody amazing like that, I spend a week trying to play like them. And then I just realized it's stupid, you know, like I'll never do it. And he's Jim Hall, you know, like he's already somebody who's one of the greatest jazz guitar players ever. So then I started to play express for him and he said, Oh, show me that. Like teach me how to play that. So I'm showing it to him and his wife walks in and she goes, oh, what are you guys doing? And Jim goes, I know this guy's giving me a guitar lesson. (laughs) This is too funny, right? That's surreal. 
this is like hysterical. I was like, it, that's not really what's happening. Okay, <laughs> okay we're going to put a pin in it right there. That's Andy Elidord's top 10. Now, in fine Andy fashion, as always, he can't stop at 10. There's many, many more to go. So we're going to do a part two of this next week, and you'll get to hear the rest. And we drill down even deeper. It is killer. Really, really killer. Also, folks, go to Spotify, and you'll find a playlist of Andy's um, top 10 albums of all time. It'll be Guitar Radio Show, Top 10 Albums of All Time, Andy Elidort. That's how you search for it. Guitar Radio Show, Top 10 Albums of All Time, Andy Elidort. And enjoy it. Get into it. Immerse yourself. All right? We'll see you on the next episode of Guitar Radio Show. Peace. Check out Guitar Radio Show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, GuitarRadioShow.com, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Find Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, if you like the artists you hear on Guitar Radio Show, don't just stream their music, buy it. Norris Productions.